Welcome to Vineyard Hopkinton. As we follow Jesus together, we experience the Holy Spirit, create a multicultural community, and pursue kingdom of God justice. Uh, I realized this week something that I've known for a while, but it was made very clear to me this week when we were making lunches one day that I am the unhealthy person in my marriage. Like it was made very, very clear. Let me let me tell you what happened. So we're making uh, we're making lunches, all four of us, and we're sitting. The girls are making their own, and one of the girls comes to Sarah and says, "Mom, does this like is this okay? Is this good?" And Sarah looked at her plate and very, very nicely uh, said, "You know, honey, the largest part of any meal should be the vegetables." And I did what every good parent should do in that moment. I made sure that my face was to the ki- was away from the kids, and then I let it show what I was thinking. Uh, my mouth dry- I was like, I don't think I've ever willingly made vegetables the largest part of any meal that I've made. Like, has this ever been a thing I've done? Like, I, I mean, I, if it's a pre-made thing, I guess, but things that I've chosen what goes in I don't think that's ever happened like I, I there was this line in the sand that was drawn in that moment and I knew on which side of it that I stood you know like I I, I eat vegetables I just feel like I need to acknowledge that like I do eat veg- vegetables I'll eat corn that counts right tomatoes that counts uh potatoes sweet or otherwise like I'll eat all of those uh broccoli even asparagus I like asparagus so that gets me points uh salad spinach I'm fine with that I'll eat roasted cauliflower uh I'll even eat brussels sprouts when they're cooked with butter and bacon, that tastes pretty good. Uh, but like, I'm okay with eating vegetables. Like, there's no issues there. But the largest part of a meal, like, that put me on a different side of the line, and I knew where it was. You know, I've known for a while that Sarah was healthier than me. Uh, this was not a shocker to me. She will willingly go on three to five mile runs without the doctor telling her she's going to die if she doesn't do it. Uh, she uh, gets frustrated if she doesn't go to the gym a certain amount of times a week. I get frustrated if, or I, I'm happy, I should say, if I do go to the gym a certain amount of times a week. Uh, you know, like... Uh, <laughs> She has the willpower to do things like, you know, not eating sugar. I have the willpower to do things like not eating a fourth meal at 9.30. Like, you know, we're just at different stages in this journey towards living healthy and whole lives. There's this system principle about uh, what happens when one person in a family or in a group starts to become healthy. That if one person's intentional about it, that they will start to raise the level of health in the group or in the family that they're a part of. Uh, their level of uh, intentionality around, you know, spiritual health, emotional health, physical health, whatever it is, will start to affect everybody else that they're doing life with and starts to, to raise the level of health around them. People become healthier. You know, it's kind of like the oxygen mask on an airplane. When it drops down, and uh, you know, or when the uh, flight attendant says that if this drops down, cabin air pressure has gone to a certain level, and you need to put it on. And they say, and you need to make sure that you put it on yourself before putting it on somebody else. And once you get over the initial like paranoia of like, is she telling me that we're all going to die on this flight? You realize like I didn't actually pay attention. Like if you 
can tell what's wrong with this situation here. This is a real picture that somebody took, and none of them are covering their nose. Like, that's a problem when you're putting on an oxygen mask, nose and mouth. But if you don't put on your own oxygen mask, you're not going to be able to breathe. You can't help anybody else if you can't breathe, right? We have to take care of ourselves and grow our own level of health in order to be able to help other people. So if you've been saying, for instance, around your family or at your job or the small group that you're a part of that you're like, I wish that we were just more emotionally healthy or I really wish that we were just more spiritually vibrant. Good news. Put on your own oxygen mask and watch what starts to happen to those around you. You can't give people air if you don't have your own. You know what I mean? Like you just can't do it. And this plays out when it comes to our kids' relationship with Jesus. Uh, there's this commonly quoted stat that says that 50% of kids who are raised in the church uh, stop following Jesus as adults, which is super depressing. Uh, it's depressing if you're a parent, and it's depressing if you're a pastor, which means that if you're both, you're just like, you hear that and you cringe and kind of want to walk away. Like, what are we doing this for? It's just a coin flip. That's how it comes across in that moment. It's a depressing stat, but it's not actually the whole story. So Sarah and I have recently read this book. It's called Teach Your Children Well. And in it, Sarah Cowan Johnson, the author, quotes a study from the National Study of Youth and Religion that happened over a course of 11 years. And they found that 82% of parent, of children, not parents, of children whose parents are active in their churches and talk about and practice their faith at home go on to follow Jesus as adults. 82% of kids whose parents put on their oxygen mask and are intentional about how they live out their faith at home with their kids, 82% of those kids end up following Jesus. That's not a coin flip. That's big enough to change a generation at that point. Like, that's a pretty substantial difference and what happens with our kids. And the biggest difference is the intentionality and the willingness to prioritize following Jesus with their children, showing them what it looks like to follow Jesus day in and day out. There was another poll that she mentioned that's from Pew Research. And in 2020, they did a poll of Christian parents of teenagers in the U.S., uh, so a specific group of people. And they said 89% of those people, Christian parents of teenagers in the U.S., value their kids working hard. 72% value their kids going to college. But only 56% of Christian parents of teenagers in the U.S. said that they feel it is important that their children are raised to follow Jesus. 56% of people who call themselves, classify themselves as Christians felt that it was important to raise their kids to follow Jesus as teenagers. Friends, that's throwing away your influence. There's kind of no other way to, to get to that. That's what it is. If you're a follower of Jesus and you'll push your kids to do three to four hours of homework every single night, to be involved in all the extracurriculars because that's going to affect how they get, what college they get into, uh, their career, whatever it is, if you're willing to pay thousands of dollars extra for them to go to a certain college because you think that that's the thing that's going to set them up down the road, 
but you're not being intentional on telling them what it looks like and modeling what it looks like to follow Jesus, you're throwing away your influence. The single most important thing you can ever pass along to your kids is an understanding of who Jesus is and what it looks like to follow him, to live a life that is deeply in relationship with Jesus and that he loves them. Having a relationship with Jesus will affect your relationships. It'll affect your career choices. It'll affect your emotional and spiritual health, maybe even your physical health. It will affect a lot of things about you. No, on Sundays we get together and we often say things like, we believe that God is still active and moving in our world. That he's working in people's lives, that he's transforming us. And the question begins to come to us, like at this point, like are we living that out on Monday at our homes? Or are we saying one thing on Sunday and then living differently the rest of the week? Are we showing that to our kids? Sarah Cowan Johnson, again in this book, she wrote, you have more influence on your kids' walk with Jesus than anyone else in their lives, including the professionals. Your discipleship matters more than any program your church could offer. The average number of hours per, week, per year that a church has to influence a child is 40. 40 hours per year in something like KidZone. Parents have an average of 3,000 hours per year to influence their kids. Someone once told me that any time I was tempted to say, I don't have time, I should try saying it's not a priority and see how that felt. That's like, that's tough love right there. Um, replace, <laughs> that's not me that's saying this. This is somebody else. But uh, replacing my inner monologue of I don't have time for this with it's not a priority changed how I parented and gave me an opportunity to change my priorities. We have 40 hours a year to help your kids to know Jesus. You have, on average, 3,000. Use those 3,000 hours well. Point your kids to Jesus. What are we prioritizing? Are we prioritizing practices that lead to spiritual and emotional and physical health? Are we using our influence to point our kids towards Jesus, to point those around us towards Jesus? Uh, And... I want to give away two copies of this book because in this book, there are uh, practices that are based on the age of your kids, which is really, really awesome. So if you're sitting here and you're saying like, Stephen, I have no idea where to begin. Good news right here. So who wants them? Two people come on up and grab them right now. You better run. Otherwise they're going to disappear. Come and get it. I saw, I saw the hand. One other copy. Who wants it? Who wants it? Oh, there we go. Perfect. Clint Herman. There you go. No, I won't. There you go. (laughs) Show my Tom Brady skills right there. Not Mac Jones, Tom Brady skills. I'll just clarify that difference. Uh, You know, it's common for us as Christians to feel like we don't have the goods, like we don't have the tools, we don't have the things necessary to do this, to influence those around us for Jesus, Uh, that we don't know how to share who Jesus is with other people, whether it's an eight-year-old or a 50-year-old, right? That's a common thing that I hear people say. But the good news is, according to the Bible, that that's not true. You have been given everything you need to live this out with those who are around you. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 2. He says, my counsel for you is simple and straightforward. Just go ahead with what you've been given. 
You received Christ Jesus, the Master, now live Him. You're deeply rooted in Him. You're well constructed upon Him. You know your way around the faith. Now do what you've been taught. School's out. Quit studying the subject and start living it. And let your living spill over into thanksgiving. Go ahead with what you've been given. Paul's basically saying, stop saying that you can't. Stop using that because that's not the truth. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you've been given what, you've been, what you need. You've been rooted in Jesus. Your life is being built upon the rock, upon a foundation that's solid and isn't going to crumble away. So go and live it out. And while you're living it out, raise the level of those around you in your families, at your work, in your neighborhood. Raise the level of people knowing who Jesus is. Healthy people influence the groups that they are a part of. And healthy churches are filled with healthy people who are living out their faith in Jesus. And in the book of Acts, we're introduced to a really healthy church, which is nice to come across once, one of those once in a while. And it's the church in Antioch. It's a church that lived this out well uh, in some very just concise and clear ways. And I want to talk about the church in Antioch from Acts chapter 11. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open to that. It'll be on the screen, of course. But I want to talk about what it looks like to live as a healthy church filled with healthy people. So let's pray, and then we're going to read from Acts 11. Jesus, I just uh, just ask for you to come and to speak to us. I know that talking about uh, our own level of health is a hard subject. And we start to come up with all the things and our brain starts working through it. But I pray that right now, Jesus, that you'll just take away any distractions from that and instead help us to focus on you because you say that you've already given us what we need to be healthy. We're rooted in you. We live lives as your followers that are in your presence. You are changing us, recreating us, transforming us. And so I pray that that will be aware to us this morning. And Jesus, I thank you for what you want to do in our hearts and in our lives today. We just ask for you to come, to speak to us, to reveal yourself. Thank you for your love for us as our Father and for the good news that's to be found in a life that's following you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Open up there. Let's read it. It says, Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God, but only to Jews. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. And the power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. When the church at Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when they, he arrived and saw this evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy. And he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and strong in faith. And many people were brought to the Lord. And pause there for a moment. So what we skipped over that led to this is that the church was growing in Jerusalem. It was growing a lot. 
rapidly. It was becoming very big. And it's fun to be a part of a growing group of something that's like everybody likes and everybody respects and everybody is pretty happy with. That's a pretty good thing. But in the midst of that, they kind of forgot part of what Jesus told them when he left, which is you need to leave Jerusalem and go spread the good news of Jesus in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They kind of avoided that part of it because it's really fun in being in a growing space and just like kind of enjoying that. Uh, and so they had gotten a little comfortable, but everybody liked them. So, you know, what's the point in, in messing that up? So then somebody gets murdered and everything, you know, gets blown up. You know, the guy's name who gets murdered is Stephen. It's not fun being named after, like, a guy who's known for getting killed. That's kind of weird. But, hey, you know, anytime people are like, is your name in the Bible? Yeah, he's the first guy murdered in the new, like, church after Jesus. Oh, that's nice, you know. Um, But he's murdered. Everything changes. Jerusalem's no longer safe. Uh, People start spreading out throughout Asia into Africa, and the church begins to grow. And they do what Jesus then called them to do in Acts 1.8. You receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So Antioch, this church that we're told about, uh, is planted out of this painful persecution that that came. But God moves. People are coming to know Jesus in like really powerful ways. Uh, Surprising people are coming to know Jesus. They, They were just trying to reach the Jewish folks in the cities, and then they realized that's not working very well for us, but there's a lot of other people that we could tell about Jesus. And so they start telling all the Gentiles, and they start following Jesus. And the church begins to get a little messier probably, but it's growing, and there's really good stuff. And so Jerusalem, the big dogs, hear about it, and Peter and John and James are like, hey, we need to send somebody trustworthy because those guys in Antioch are getting a little bit off the chain and we need to make sure that they're doing things right. So they send Barnabas, who everybody likes, who's very nice and friendly and generous and just a great all-around guy. They send Barnabas to Antioch and Barnabas gets there and little did they know that Barnabas was not actually the rule follower that they may have thought that he was. And so Barnabas gets there and instead of saying, you need to start doing stuff like Peter said, he sees what's going on and he says this is awesome let's do more and he jumps in and he starts joining with them and the church grows and more people are coming to know jesus and this is what a really healthy church looks like right this is something to to strive for the antioch church knew that they were on mission They knew that they were supposed to be Jesus' witnesses, to preach the good news, to make disciples. They didn't have to wait for God to go and do something. They knew that they were called to go and do something, that it was up to them to start actually living it out. And they did. They didn't waste their influence. They shared the good news of Jesus with the people that Jesus placed in front of them in their regular everyday life. And lots of people came to know him. And I'm convicted by this example super convicted by this example because these people were creative outside of the box and they weren't content they wanted to see everybody come to know jesus and so when one group dried up they said well there's other folks and we're going to start reaching them i'm convicted by that because sometimes i've allowed the barriers to sharing the good news of jesus become my excuses 
Anybody else willing to admit that you've done that a little bit? You know, things like busyness. Like, we live in New England. We, we like, that's our first thing that we say about how life is, right? How's, how, how are you doing today? Oh, doing pretty good. Really busy. Lots of things going on. Like, that's, that's our conversation starter as New England folks. Uh, like, busyness. But here's a question. Like, are you too busy to pray and ask Jesus to point out to you the people in your busy lives that he wants you to love on. That doesn't take really any time. just takes intentionality at that point. Maybe you've been thinking like, I'm not ready. I'm just not at the place where I can tell anybody about who Jesus is and what he's doing in my life. I need to go to seminary. Like I need a master's degree, maybe a doctorate in order to get to that point. I'm just not there yet, Stephen. Hear me out on this. If Jesus sent you on purpose to your neighborhood, to your job, to the train that you take into Boston two to four times a week. Do you think that he knows who he sent there? Do you think that he knew who you were? And when he placed people around you, he knew that you would be the right person to bring Jesus into that setting. When Jesus sends us, it's because we're the right people for the job. Trust that Jesus has been forming you for the places that he sent you to. Or maybe you're worried that God won't do his part and you'll be left looking like a fool. I admit that I struggle with that one. But again, you know, uh, and I'll just say, like, if you do struggle with that, like, it's good to acknowledge that. We don't have to pretend like we don't struggle. Like, acknowledging doubt, acknowledging those things is healthy. But just because I feel something doesn't mean that it's truth. And that's also equally good to acknowledge. Just because I say it in my head doesn't mean it's actually the reality of what's going on. Here's the truth. Jesus has never stood me up. He's never left me with the check at the end of the meal, wondering how it is that I'm going to pay for this expensive dinner. He's never left me wait, like, he's never left me in a spot where I'm going to fail. He has always shown up. He's always been there. He's always been trustworthy. And I've always been able to rely upon him. That's the truth. Let that truth be the thing that guides you. Not a fear that he's going to all of a sudden change and become something that he's never been. Jesus is always consistent. And again, I'm preaching to myself here, so I own that one. But Paul lays out how to live a life like this out in Colossians 4. Listen to this. He says, pray for us too that God will give us many opportunities to speak about his mysterious plan concerning Christ. That's why I'm here in chains. Pray that I will proclaim this message as clearly as I should. Live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. Here's what Paul tells us about this. Living intentionally in the places that we're at. He says, just simply do this. Pray for opportunities to share who Jesus is. Speak clearly when the time comes. Pay attention to how you live because other people are paying attention to how you live. And let your words be full of grace. 
And I think what he's pointing at here, this, this kind of vague, like, you know, full of grace, seasoned with salt sort of language that he throws out, it, it is partially at least this. Don't expect people who don't know Jesus to live like they do know Jesus. But for those of us who do know Jesus, we need to live in a way that proves who Jesus is. It's on us, not on somebody else. Live our lives filled with grace. Are we being intentional? Those are easy things to do. It's just a willingness to say, Holy Spirit, guide me, and then open your mouth when it comes around. So let's look at what else we see from the church in Antioch. Verse 25. Then Barnabas went on to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. And both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. It was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. I'll skip to chapter 13, just verse 1, and show you the leadership team of this church. It says, Among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Menaean, and Saul. These are the people leading this really healthy church. And what this shows us here is that healthy churches create space at the table and they remove barriers for people to be able to come and know Jesus. Barnabas at this point, as probably the main leader, is just doing what Jesus did, right? We see this modeled in the Gospels. What did Jesus do? He went around. He invited people to follow him. He taught them what it looked like to live lives that were like his. He, he modeled it out for them. He taught them about the kingdom of God, this message that he kept preaching every single place that he went to. Uh, he, he did life with them. He invited them to his table. He empowered them to do what he was doing. First, he sent out 12, and then he sent out 72. And then for the rest of their time together, he kept saying, don't forget, you've been discipled, you've been empowered, you've been filled, like you have the goods to go and do what it is that I'm asking you to do. And even when he left, when he went back to the Father, he said those exact things. Go and live out what it is that I've taught you and I've shown you. He encouraged them to do this. And this is essentially mentoring, right? We know what this is. There's no like special like magic uh, knowledge that you have to have to do this. It's just modeling how to live a life that follows Jesus, that follows the leadership of Jesus. And it's kind of simple. It's like, I do, you watch, and then we talk. And then I do, and you help, and we talk again. And then you do, and I help, and we talk. And then you do, and I watch, and we talk. And then you do everything, I disappear, and somebody else watches you. Like, this is what mentoring looks like. We understand what it, it's pretty simple sort of thing, but it's what a healthy do, church does regularly. And I was thinking about, like, how are we doing this in our church? And I, I thought of a few examples, which is good. Otherwise, we'd have a problem. Uh, and, and so I, I might say some of your names, and I didn't ask your permission, so sorry. That's what it is. <laughs> I'll start with Marcos, so don't worry. <laughs> you make eye contact, so it's good. No, actually, I am going to mention you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, but I was thinking, like, who does this really well? Rob's done this in small groups really well as a leader. He'll lead the group, and then he'll kind of be aware of, like, who has some leadership potential, and then he'll say, how about if you lead this time? And so they've watched him, and then they lead. 
and then they'll talk about it afterwards and then they'll lead again and then they'll talk about it afterwards and then he'll step back and stop leading but still be involved and they'll continue talking and I was thinking like who's he done this with recently and like Marcos and Erica Jose and Lily and now you look at their group and they're like the best small group in the entire church you're welcome guys you're welcome I know you wanted that so there you go Uh, but he did this really really well giving those opportunities to step up I, I thought about a couple of weeks ago with youth group uh, when Sue Turner and Pete Sammons led group because Sarah wanted to take a night off, which is a good thing to do every once in a while. And so Sarah takes the night off and I was here because we had Alpha. And so I connected with them afterwards and I was like, okay guys, how'd it go? I heard some screaming, but no ambulance. So I'm assuming everything was okay. And they both had huge smiles and were really happy because they had seen the Holy Spirit working in the lives of some of the students throughout that evening. And they were just excited about what, they, what Jesus was doing because Sarah had given them opportunities and showed them what to do. And then they ran with it because they were ready to go. I, I think about it, Alpha, the reason that I was at church that, that Sunday night. And uh, basically my job is just to make sure that like, people get there and then I let other people do stuff and that's really nice that's a good way to do things so I I get make sure we have food and that the talk plays and then I disappear and I let other people lead the discussion and Andrea Doherty has been the main discussion leader over the past uh, few uh, over the past five or six weeks however far we are into it and honestly it's been so fun because I disappear into the other room and I listen and I hear the stories and I hear the, the things that are being said, and I just smile as I listen to what the Holy Spirit's doing. And she's better at doing it than I am. Like, I can admit that. I am confident enough to say that. She's just flat out better. And the things that she'll ask and the way she'll lead it is just perfect for this group of people. This is what it looks like to create space at the table. And if you're excited about doing this, I have books for you. So, if you're excited about mentoring and you want to learn how to do this in just practical, easy ways, this book called Hero Maker, really practical, uh, really good stuff. Jim wants one. I like that. Uh, Marcos, your wife just said that you get one. There you go. Boom. Perfect. (laughs) See, Erica just lived that out. She did, and then she gave you space. Uh but this is good. Healthy churches create space at the table and then remove barriers. Again, Acts eleven twenty six. It was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. They were called literally little Christ because they looked so much like Jesus. People thought they were making fun of them. Turned out jokes, joke was actually on the bullies who were making fun of them because we, we claimed it and owned it and said this is actually a good thing and continued to stick with that title because they look so much like Jesus. What did Jesus look like? Jesus was the ultimate barrier remover. He was always crossing things that people thought was too awkward and uncomfortable. He would go and lay hands. He he didn't just pray for people from a distance. You know, people who you shouldn't touch because if you touch them, then you have to leave community too. He wasn't content. He could have. He could have prayed for them from right here and been like, okay, God, please do something. Uh, like he could have done that number. 
No, he went up, put his hand on their shoulder, and healing flowed. He broke barriers. Jesus called people to follow him. He called like dirty, grimy criminals. Like we only know them by name, but if we look at their reputation, it wasn't very good. And he said, come and follow me. He, he went and forgave prostitutes immediately after the person left their house. Like he, he now he had other words to say for the guy in that equation. So I just want to point that out. But he forgave the prostitute and, and invited them to follow them. He healed the children of Roman soldiers. Do you ever think about that? He literally gave life to his oppressor. Like that's powerful and kind of mind-blowing. His first words after the resurrection were to a woman that even his best friends didn't think was reliable enough to tell them what had just happened. He was constantly cutting through and breaking barriers. That's how he lived. People who look like Jesus are removing barriers all the time as well. Galatians 3.26, For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. He tells us that we're God's children, that we are his heirs, that we're a part of the family. To be somebody's heir means that their will's been completely rewritten. Think about that. God went and rewrote his will and included us in it. You don't get kicked out of that very easily. Like, that means you're in that you're his, that you're adopted, that you're real, that you're a part, that there's not really any getting out unless you try really, really hard. We're adopted into the family of God. And it says that we're adopted into one family, not a bunch of separate families. We're not adopted into into separate families based on ethnicity or race. It's one family. There's not a family for people from Africa and a a family for people from Europe and a family for people from the U.S. There's one family. There's not a family for people who speak English and a family for people who speak Spanish and a family for people who speak Portuguese. There's one family. There's not a family for people who have lived good lives and a family for people who have lived lives and have gone through some stuff. There is one family. There's not a family based on education education level or a separate family based on socioeconomic status. There is one family. There is now no longer Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is one family that we are all welcomed into, that we're all born into, we're adopted into one family that we're a part of. And this is the image of the family of God that Jesus tells us about, that lays out in the Bible. In Revelation 7, after this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. And they were shouting, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. People from every tribe and nation and people and language together worshiping God. 
There's not a bunch of different sets, uh, different worship styles going on. It's one family together before the throne of Jesus on our knees acknowledging who he is and what it is that he's done. That's his image of a healthy church. Healthy churches are filled with healthy people who are following Jesus, who aren't wasting their influence, and who are willing to share the good news of the transformational reality of Jesus with whoever Jesus puts in our path. Healthy churches create space for people at the table so that they can live out their calling as followers of Jesus. And we remove barriers for everyone, creating one family that reflects the good news that Jesus has for us. That's what healthy churches are. So how do we take that first step and we start being healthy people who are following Jesus? My counsel for you is simple. Go ahead with what you've been given. You received Christ Jesus. Now live him. You're deeply rooted in him. You're well constructed upon him. You know your way around the faith. Now do what you've been taught. Friends, school's out. Quit studying the subject and start living it. And let your living spill over into thanksgiving. Let's raise the level in our church, in our neighborhoods, at our jobs, in our community, and watch what Jesus does. Mm -hmm.